Hello, and welcome to this episode of Unvarnished. This is a collaborative effort, kind of a podcast between Guts and Glory GNB, a live storytelling organization in Gainesville, Florida, and also WUFT News. I'm Taylor Williams, the creative director of Guts and Glory GNB, and also your host for Unvarnished. Um, we're so happy to to have Daniel Webster in the booth today. And Daniel was in our holodrama show that happened this past Monday. So in the spirit of the Unvarnished podcast, which focuses on not only stories, but the stories and the people behind the stories, we have Daniel with us today. Welcome, Daniel. It's good to be here. <laughs> uh, Daniel is no uh, stranger to the storytelling sort of stage, but in a different way because of his past as a minister. Now, do you, now should I say minister, preacher, pastor? Minister's fine. Minister, okay. They all work. <laughs> okay, interchangeable, but I don't know if everybody feels that way. Anyway, you've had a little bit of experience from the pulpit. Right. Yeah. And so we were glad to um, have him in our pulpit, as it were, <laughs> um, a few times, but <laughs> glad to have him in the podcast pulpit today. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so what we'll do is we'll play um, his story at our holodrama show, and then we'll get into our interview. Okay, Daniel, you ready for it? Ready to go. Here it is. When I was a kid, I used to have what I call a hate-love relationship with Christmas Eve. Now, you may think I should have said love-hate, but it was a hate-love relationship because my family made me go to church every Christmas Eve before we went to my grandparents' house for dinner and open their presents. That was the love part. The church part <clears throat> was the hate part. Every year, we would go to my church, we would hear a boring sermon, we would sing Christmas songs at a dirge pace, we would read the same stories we heard every single year. And then that boring sermon, and I swear the minister preached the same dang one every year. And then we got a new minister, and he preached the same sermon. So I had this hate-love relationship. I did not like Christmas Eve until after church, and then the food, then my uncles and aunts and my grandparents, then it was good. And so I just hated Christmas Eve services, just period, end of sentence, until my freshman year of college, a buddy who had joined the Navy called me and he said, I'm flying in from California if I can get there, and if you can pick me up and take me to church, my parents don't know I got this last second leave. I'm going to surprise them at church tonight. So I picked him up at the airport. We got to church. I slipped in to watch their reactions as he slipped down and moved into the pew beside him. His mom started crying. His dad started shaking. I thought he was laughing. Then he looked back at me and he was crying. <laughs> and so I was leaving. I'd seen the reaction I wanted to do. And one of the deacons at the back of the church pulled out a folding chair and stuck it in front of me. <laughs> and now I am at a Christmas Eve service. 
This one's a midnight service, way later than I was ever used to, but I am a polite Southern boy. <laughs> and so I sat in the seat and I observed this. It was amazing. Oh, the choir was incredible. The sermon was, was good. And at the very end, we went into darkness for just a little while, and then they lit the Christ candle and passed the light among all of us in the church, and when I walked out, I thought, man, Christmas really came tonight. I, I, now I understand why they have Christmas Eve services. And I thought to myself in passing, boy, if I'm ever in charge of a Christmas Eve service, Anybody who knew me then knew that was a joke. I'm the guy who, when he goes back to a high school reunion, my friends say, you're a what? <laughs> so it was just this idea that was planted that maybe someday I would be able to plan a, a service. It took a few years, but I was here in Gainesville when I started getting this tug that maybe I was supposed to be a minister. My wife will tell you that I was a little surprised by that. She was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to seminary and I pastored a church in the country for four years. It was a wonderful little country church. People were kind, people were gracious. And they gave me every year, the Sunday before and the Sunday after Christmas off to be with my family. Well, that was wonderful. But I still had in my mind that perfect Christmas Eve service I wanted to plan. Well, those four years went. Then I moved to Omaha, Nebraska. I was the associate minister in a church up there. They had their, it was just like the one I grew up with. It was terrible. <laughs> and nobody wanted to change anything. And so I was bored out of my mind every year. I would do my little part, read the story I'd been reading since I was a kid. And then I took a call to a church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Big change from Omaha. <laughs> Omaha got cold at Christmas. Hattiesburg generally stayed like this at Christmas. And so I approached the church what are your Christmas traditions? Well, they looked at me like I was crazy. Well, we don't really have any. We put up a Christmas tree. That was it. No Christmas Eve service, no nothing. They sang a few carols right before and right after Christmas. That was it. And I thought, I get to plan my Christmas Eve service. It's going to be perfect. So I approached them and we did a number of things. I said, well, can we celebrate Advent? What's Advent? <laughs> I, I tried to explain to them. They said, that sounds too Catholic to us. <laughs> but you can do something on Christmas Eve. And so I planned, oh, I planned this service that was going to be wonderful. It was going to have music and lights and all these wonderful things. I was even going to give a good sermon. <laughs> and so I planned this thing to a T. I planned for 120 people to show up. I was ready for 200 just in case. It was 
everything was set. It was just the way I designed it, had everything laid out. It was all perfect. In 1983, Christmas Eve was a Saturday. In 1983, at 10.30 in the morning, it was 64 degrees. At 10.30, the temperature started to drop. It finally stopped dropping at 4.30 in the afternoon, and it was an unheard of in southern Mississippi, four degrees. There is not a building in Hattiesburg, Mississippi that is made for four degrees. Now, I had the coat. I'd lived in Omaha. I'd had the clothes. I could handle the cold, but my church could not. And at 1030 on Christmas Eve night, the temperature in the building finally settled out at a solid 44 degrees. At 10 minutes till 11, people started coming in. Remember, I'm ready for 150, counting on 120. 39 stalwart souls showed up for Christmas Eve. It was planned to have all the parts flow together, and then at exactly a minute and a half before midnight, the sanctuary would go dark. And for 90 seconds, we would contemplate our need for light to come into the world. And exactly midnight, the Christ candle would light and we would pass the light among the church. That was the plan. <laughs> At nine minutes till midnight, everything was done. My usual slow organist needed to keep her fingers warm and we blasted through every single song. That church people had never come forward for communion and they kind of ran up and dipped to go back into their quote warmer pews. And so everything just went and at nine minutes I was leading the church into silence waiting for that perfect moment at midnight. 90 seconds in the dark <laughs> seems like an eternity. Nine minutes <laughs> is an eternity. It took Alan Jackson and Jimmy Buffett a while to figure out it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> it took me 90 seconds to figure out it's midnight somewhere. <laughs> and so I lit the Christ candle and we passed out the light and everybody got and, and, and I need to tell you what happened during that time of silence while I was making this decision. It wasn't silent. 39 people going <laughs> 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 
And so I said the benediction we sang and everybody left and got in the car and I got and told Nell, I said, that was horrible. <laughs> and it was horrible. I felt terrible. The next day was Christmas. Christmas was on Sunday. And we were one of two churches in town who because of having the late night service, three counting the Catholic church, because of having the late night service, we were one of three churches in town whose pipes had not burst during the night. And so people who planned to go to church went to those three churches. So I had a full house. Christmas Day. I got up and I started, I said, Merry Christmas. For those of you who were at the service last night, I really want to offer a sincere apology for how all of that went down. I really feel bad. And I just apologized all over myself. We had our wonderful service. We'd gotten it up to 64 degrees, by the way, with all those people that wasn't too bad. We got to the end and I apologized again. I really want to tell you how bad I feel about last night's service. And I was thinking to myself the whole time, they're never going to do another Christmas Eve service. I may not have a job for New Year's. <laughs> and so I did as I always did every Sunday morning. At the end of the service, people came. I shook hands at the door. People thanked me for that morning service. And when it was over, I just kind of went, Let's go home. And I walk back into the sanctuary, and there are 39 people sitting there. And I know they're going to tell me, damn right, you're sorry. <laughs> so one of the elders stood up, and he says, Pastor, I want to know where you were last night, because I don't think you were here. Uh -huh. He said, all 39 of us have stayed in this room to tell you one thing. That was the most amazing service we've ever been to. <laughs> Christmas came, and you missed it. So I'm going to preach for about half a second. Don't plan so much at Christmas or your wedding, or your life, or anything that you miss it. Now, Daniel, my first thing I want to say to our listeners is that you might sound a little bit different <laughs> Than you did um, in our storytelling show because since the show, you and I have come down with terrible colds, and we either we sound like we should be running a one nine hundred number. Nobody else should come into this studio. <laughs> there are so many disgusting germs in here in this moment. But that's why you sound like a different person. Right. A right. little bit lower. Right. Exactly. And we're so grateful that you would come in after uh, feeling under the weather. So thank you for that. Like I said, it's good to be here. Yeah. Something fun's happening. Right. Something fun is happening. We're glad you feel that way. Um, this was such a special story. Uh, you shared this with me a long time ago because I had the opportunity to read kind of um, how many were it? A ten, a dozen Christmas stories in that collection that you sent me? It, at least eight, I think I sent you. 
Yeah. And they were all so good. I joked at the show that you said, yeah, Taylor, just go ahead and pick one. (laughs) No way. I'm not taking on that responsibility. (laughs) Right. I was glad that you you chose one in the end. Right, right. Yeah. One of those things I kept thinking about, which one, which one. And as I told you, I had one I was kind of locked in on. Right. And then as I was driving home, I'd gone to Tennessee and I as I was driving home, I thought, no, it really needs to be this one that I told last Monday. Yeah. And how do you, does that process of kind of, you know, driving or just doing some thinking on your own and having something come to you in that way, did you experience that when you shared stories in more of a ministerial context? What was that process like for you, I guess, is what I'm asking. Usually when I'm preaching, um, I have a, a, there's usually a theme, there's a scripture, there's something that anchors the whole thing. And so I'm constantly thinking of how do I want to illustrate or make that point? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes stories work, sometimes they don't. So I have to craft a sermon very differently than I do a story. But I do a lot of thinking and sometimes something just pops in you go let me see if i run with that how it will work uh in church on sunday morning Mm -hmm. and sometimes i think man i got it and saturday night i'm out walking the dog and going uh (laughs) that's not gonna work it makes the exact opposite point (laughs) i get to the end (laughs) no one will believe me (laughs) (laughs) so i have to rethink but uh Often there's this kind of aha moment. That's it. Yes. Let's go. Right. Yeah. And it's satisfying when that happens, oh, right? Oh, I love when I have the aha moment that works. <laughs> right. Uh, as opposed to the I'm making the opposite point that I set out uh, oh, to do. Oh, nuts moment. Yeah. I know, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and that also reminds me of something that really struck me as you were telling this story live on Monday is that um, – there really is a balance in storytelling between um, the public and the private. So I would imagine that when you're speaking to a group of people, whether that be in like a, ch- a church context or um, a stage performance, that's there's some overlap there. Like you're you're kind of taking care of your audience or the, you know your congregation, um, but also it's it's inevitably something about you. Is is that does that ring true for you? I, yeah, I, I think anytime you tell a story, particularly the kind we do at Guts and Glory GMV, they're personal. Right. And when I tell that kind of story in a sermon, it's, it has to reveal something about me. Sure. When I do it at the Woolly with you, it's different because I may know at the most 10 people out there. If mm. I do it in church and I've been talking to them for three or four years there's all this background they know stuff before i even start talking (laughs) and i can pick up in a different place Hmm. if i'm telling a story on a stage i have to set it up differently right yeah the context has to be different yeah Right. right that's so cool i um it's occurring to me as you're talking too that this is how I think people feel when they are talking about something that they're still processing 
or maybe even speaking about something that may have been traumatic or hurtful, is there's kind of this decision-making point that you have to get to, even in our scandalous show where people were talking about, you know, really personal things. Um, there's a decision-making point where it's like, how much do I reveal here? How much context do I have to give for people to really grasp what I'm talking about? And that can be hard. That can be hard. And, and like I say, in, in a church where they've been learning a bit about you over time, it's, it's sometimes easier to go a little deeper and bear a little more right. than I would ever do up on a stage with people I don't know. Right. Unless I'm going out of town and I'll never see those people again. <laughs> I think this is why people travel to storytelling yes. festivals and yes. see full of strangers. Give me a chance to go tell one in Asheville, North Carolina. I'm good. I'll tell you anything. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to do that in the town where I live. <laughs> I know. Yeah, there's a part of that 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 uh, you've got to be protective maybe, you know, at some point. Yeah. And, you know, when you're telling stories, <clears throat> invariably there's other people involved. That's My right. wife. Right. Or people in a church or people in a situation. And there's some stories I simply won't tell until it's been 10 years and I'm living somewhere else. Yep. Like I would not have told that Hattiesburg story in Hattiesburg. For example. For example. <laughs> right. And yeah. incorporating other people in it is right. a completely different right. animal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um yeah, that's that's so true. And I think knowing um, you do a nice job of knowing the audience. Um, and I think that's a part of the process in learning how to tell stories is kind of reading the room and knowing your audience. But when you've planned a story, it's too late once you get up there. You know? <laughs> Yeah, although <laughs> I, I've taken your improv for storytelling class. Yes, <laughs> thank you for being there. That's and right. uh, there are there are times when you can look out and go, "This isn't working." Sure. Oh yeah. And and be <laughs> able to shift gears a little bit. Um, right. You still got the story, but you might add a few details or or tell something a little funnier than you might have planned to. Right. Um, I, I'm usually able to do that. I'm, I'm, I usually pick out about five people in a room, and I look at those five people. If they're giving me good verbal, I mean not verbal, uh, visual cues when I start, I keep watching them. And if they're looking at something else, like their watch or their friend or their, <laughs> their phone. phone, I know I better step it up or change it up. Exactly. Start dancing something. Uh, something. Right. <laughs> That's so true about public speaking is trying to find your you know anchors in the room and kind of read it that way, right? I've done that in every church I've ever been in. Huh. I have my people, if if four of them happen not to be there on Sunday, it's pretty good chance the sermon's going to stink. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. I love Yeah. That's it. I, that's it. That's it. And that, that's good to be able to know how to improvise. I mean, it's funny, like, even thinking about public speaking is there's so many um, ways to interpret what public speaking means, but pretty much everybody is afraid of it. So some of those skills are, are good for grounding, you know? Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm one of those people who was scared to death to speak. Really? I when I was a kid, I would take an F before I would recite a poem in front of a class, even though I knew it forward and backwards. Really? I forever was, don't ask me to stand up there. 
What I'm changed? Not, uh, that's a great question. I have tried along the way to face my fears, whether it's darkness or heights or whatever. Right. And try something. So for darkness, it was going cave exploring. For heights, it was going skydiving. Oh, wow. And for, <laughs> for public speaking, it was taking a public speaking class and saying, I'm going to overcome this. So you must have had a good teacher. It was great that uh, it was somebody I actually ended up knowing in college. He had been my high school teacher who had given me F's for not standing up and said, now let me coach you. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Talk about a full circle moment. Yeah. He He moved from the high school to college and he was great. That is so cool when things like that happen. He was meant to be your public speaking advocate and teacher. teacher. <laughs> That's great. Um, my So your story is so powerful for a lot of different reasons. And the end, I think, is just such a rich moment for all of us. So you, you can have, you know, anyone who listens to this, I feel like, can any, have any kind of religious or spiritual belief or upbringing or experience and really it doesn't matter because that's not fully the point of of the story right right i tried to say at the end even though i said i'm going to preach a little (laughs) which Um, was great (laughs) i i I said it could be about christmas or your wedding or exactly any event that if you over plan such that you actually miss the heart of it You ever go on vacation and some people are videoing everything and you think, are you going to know what you did when you got home? Yeah. I want to experience it in the moment. Right. And I didn't that night. Yep. I miss Christmas. Yep. And uh, I had an astute enough group of people in the church to fairly gently let me know. Right. Christmas came, Pastor. You missed it. Yeah. What a poignant line. And it's and it is so familiar. I feel like you could hear in the audience that people are just like, oh, oof. It's like a little Mm -hmm. gentle punch in the stomach, you know, like we've all been there in our in our own way. I, I, I do think now, to be perfectly honest, even as a pastor, I I can talk about experiencing God or or something. But my most often way I do that is in the past and looking back and going, oh, I missed that while it was happening. And I don't think that's totally bad. It's good to be reflective. But I sure have spent a lot of my life trying to be aware in the moment of what's happening with people or me or whatever is going on. Even in storytelling, I try to be aware of what's happening in front of me. Right. Yeah, and that that it's funny that the backwards looking um example and this is familiar for me as well and I think a lot of people it's funny that that gives us, you know, the hindsight is 2020, right? So it gives us a lot of insight and still sometimes it can keep us from being in the moment. So I have a tendency to say, well, this is what happened in the past or like judging by past experiences. But it's funny how it's still not always helpful. Yeah, it, again, I think being reflective is good. 
but I, I think being as wide open as you can to the present moment, yeah, even if it's kind of crappy, right, is okay. What am I learning here? Right. What What can I take from this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, I'm trying in my own life always to be aware of that. What's going on right now? Yeah. And so it's. Uh, it's always a balancing act. Living is a balancing act. <laughs> and uh, I hope my stories sort of reflect that kind of balancing. Yeah, I think you're very good at that. Um, looking back on the other stories that you've done with us or that I've that I've read, you have such good perspective. And I am we- grateful that you let me tell one that didn't include death in any way, shape, or form <laughs> this time. You do, <laughs> you do have a way. <laughs> Or so far, that's what your track record is. People are like, that's the death guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So it's like, yes, that is so funny. The first one involved a cemetery, yes, right? Yes. And then body boys. Yes, body was boys. It, right, right? Right, right. Yeah. Sorry well, you missed them, folks. <laughs> right, sorry you missed them. We'll, we'll have Daniel back to talk about death whenever <laughs> whenever possible. Um, but that is so funny, and I feel like uh, – yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's the, I don't know. Maybe there's something about the way that you. Not everyone actually would be comfortable talking about that on on stage, and I feel like you have a way of even balancing stories that feel darker. I hope so. <laughs> right, you're all darkness. I'm all dark. <laughs> like death, dude right, is on exactly. the stage again. Oh no, death dude, here he comes. Um, yeah, and so I guess uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about this being present thing is what are some of the ways that you um, practice presence, I guess, in, in your own life? Uh, I, I try to keep my eyes wide open. Mm. Um, I try to, to look around and be empathetic to what other people are thinking and feeling, but also be deep enough to look inside and see what I'm thinking and feeling um, and, and simply trying to be aware uh, I, I don't know how to describe trying to open up mm-hmm. I, I know when my vision narrows yes <laughs> and uh, if I can catch myself before I get tunnel vision I can open back up yeah right so almost being able to find that moment where you can feel yourself narrowing or, right. or closing in. Right. And if I can catch that, then I can kind of stop myself and say, take a deep breath. Reconnect with yourself, with God, with whatever. Right. And focus outside now instead of so much inside for a bit. Yeah. It's the balance thing. Maybe That's again. the balance thing. Yeah. Right, right. That's a good place to find, as it turns out. And I don't always find it, but I try. <laughs> I work at it. Right. It's, it's a never-ending <laughs> never process. Yeah. And um, I think that we have a tendency to um, look at certain uh, leaders in our community or even jobs in our community, much like someone who works in a religious and spiritual, I don't think those are always the same, so I use them, I don't right. but whatever, uh, context, that there's, um, I, I would imagine being in that position for a, a large part of your life that you have to seek balance a lot. It feels like it would be a huge responsibility. 
it is a huge responsibility, and you do have to seek it. And some places and people are easier to find it with. Yeah. Some places, and my meal use the church. Right. Some churches are wonderfully easy to be yourself and to be aware, and others put you on the defensive and narrow your vision. And so sometimes I think you go through those places to learn. Yeah. Um, it's for me, it, mm. it's okay. I can see how I can get defensive, how I can get self-focused, and I've learned from that. So there's no place I've been or experience I've been through that I wouldn't do again. Um, mm. But it doesn't mean I liked all of them at the time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, being present to it even when it's kind of crappy. Right. You know? Yeah. And that's hard to do. Yeah. Absolutely. We don't like to be uncomfortable or fearful or upset. Yeah. Or defensive. Or defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so here I am. That's the way I am. Sorry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all glad for it. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just so I'm so glad that you would spend um, this time with us and that we've had you on our stage. Um, I'm hoping that you will look at the 2019 schedule and choose some other times to come back and talk about death or anything else you want to talk about. Let's talk about life this time. Let's talk about life this time. This has been Daniel Webster talking about life. Um, well, thank you for being here with us, Death Daniel. And I timed it. No, we're not going to call you that. We're, we're done. We're over it. We got it out of our system in this podcast. Um, but thank you for talking about Monday's story. Um, it's relevant every time of the year, you know. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, and we'll have you back. Um, maybe you can teach a class on public speaking soon. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's time to take a deep breath. If we, if we could breathe. Both of us can't breathe right now. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This has been Taylor Williams and Daniel Webster with Unvarnished. Um, we will see you in the future. We want to let you know that this um, – is the end of this project that we made of Unvarnished and that this is kind of, we're considering this our first season. Um, it felt like a natural time to release this last episode for all of you at the end of the year. And we're hoping to relaunch sometime in 2019. So we're really glad that you've joined us. Um, let us know if you hear stories you want us to cover either through the podcast or uh, through Guts and Glory GNV live shows. We've got our whole season laid out for 2019. It's on our website, gutsandglorygnb.com, and we have a Facebook page, and you can follow us on social media. So it's been an honor uh, being in the airwaves with you. <laughs> can I say that? <laughs> um, sure. And uh, yeah, we're just really grateful to all of you as listeners and to WUFT News for housing us here. Uh, have a great holiday and we'll see you soon. Take care. <laughs>